Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. This month, we'll be talking updates and controversies in the early management of sepsis and septic shock. We have a special episode for you this month. We've brought Dr. Jeremy Rose, one of the peer reviewers and a sepsis expert, on with us to talk through the content this month. Thank you. Dr. Jeremy Rose here. Thanks again for having me on this conversation. I'm always happy to talk about this topic because it's clearly very important. There's a great deal of confusion around sepsis, and I hope that in the next couple of minutes we can clarify things in a way that will help your average frontline ED doc just trying to get it right. So Jeremy, before we get started, tell us a bit about your background and your interest in sepsis. I'm the Assistant Medical Director and Sepsis Chair at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in Manhattan. For those listening, my hospital probably looks a little bit like yours. We're busy, interesting, and just a little rough around the edges. We like it that way. More importantly, though, we mirror the national averages regarding sepsis. Roughly half of in-hospital mortality is associated with sepsis in some fashion. Pretty incredible when you think about it. Half. Sepsis chair. Clearly, this is an important topic if it warrants its own chair at a major hospital in New York City. But getting back to the article this month. This month's issue was authored by Fahim Gurgis, Laurent Page Black, and Elizabeth Devos of the University of Florida Department of Emergency Medicine. And it was peer-reviewed by Michael Allison, Assistant Director of the Adult ICU at St. Agnes Hospital, and Jeremy Rose and Eric Steinberg at Mount Sinai Beth Israel. So we all know sepsis is bread and butter emergency medicine, but what really is sepsis? It seems that every month or so, we have a new guideline, bundle, definition, or whatever you want to call it. I think it's best to start with the basics here. At its core, sepsis is a dysregulated response to infection that can be life-threatening. Right, and it's the combined inflammatory and immunosuppressive features of sepsis that lead to the devastating organ dysfunction and even death. Optimal management of septic patients has been a source of intense research stemming from the landmark study by Rivers in 2001. Jeremy, can you give us a little historical context there? Rivers, this was a true landmark study. Rivers found a 16% mortality reduction with randomization to an early aggressive care bundle. Absolutely incredible work. That being said, many components of that bundle have since been disregarded. For example, Rivers would measure CVP in all of his patients, something we rarely do routinely. Not to cut you off and steal your thunder there, but we'll get to the most recent updates in management shortly. Let's first talk definitions and terminology, and specifically diagnosis, which is definitely the big elephant in the room. As Jeff mentioned a few minutes ago, diagnostic criteria have undergone so, so, so many changes. Yes, they certainly have. 1991 marked the first standardized definition. Then, in 2001, sepsis 2 was introduced. In 2014, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and European Society of Intensive Care Medicine started a task force, and by 2016, the updated definitions were out again. Sepsis 3. A lot of this came after the realization that SIRS was just too broad and was overly sensitive and not specific. Jeremy, why don't you take us through sepsis 3? Okay, guys, here's the fundamental problem. As one of our CMOs likes to say, there is no troponin for sepsis. And if you look at our patients, we tend not to miss the hypotensive, tachycardic, febrile patient. We know they're sick. But how do we find the ones who don't look as sick? Frequently elderly, possibly with normal-ish vitals and no fever? Those can be harder to spot. But they may indeed be septic. Also, for research purposes, we have to have a common definition. So sepsis 3 came up with something called the SOFA score. The problem with the SOFA score is it is difficult to perform in the ED. It has parameters like bilirubin that often aren't available when we want to screen out our very sick patients. 
Fortunately, there is an abridged version, QSOFA, which identifies non-ICU patients who are at high risk for inpatient mortality. So here it is. And if you get only one thing from this podcast, this is it. There are only three criteria to QSOFA, respiratory rate greater than 22, altered mental status, and systolic blood pressure less than 100. That's it. If you have two of these criteria, you are up to 14 times more likely to die of sepsis during your hospital admission. That is pretty profound. These patients are sick. This is meant to replace SIRS. It also captures a much sicker population than patients included in the Medicare definition. So why do you think these specific parameters turn out to be so useful to us? Drilling down into these criteria, you can see the pathophysiology at work. Obviously, systolic blood pressure of less than 100 means sick. Interestingly, an elevated respiratory rate turns out to be prognostic too, because what you're seeing is the compensation for an underlying acidosis. The caveat here is that you have to check it. At our hospital in southern Manhattan, patients tend to breathe around 16. At our hospital in northern Manhattan, they tend to breathe around 18. It's probably because the air is thinner. Seriously, though, you have to actually measure respiratory rate for this to work. That means someone has to sit there and look at the patient and count the number of times they breathe in a minute. Temperature is not in QSOFA, but we should be checking that too. Temperature is a vital sign. And I mean checking temperature by putting something that measures temperature inside the patient. We've looked at forehead and tympanic thermometers in real world conditions, and they tend to underestimate by about a degree or more. Think about that. A patient with a headache and a temperature of 99.5 is a very different patient than one with a temperature of 100.5. Very true. And these two patients can definitely go down very different management pathways. Rounding out our discussion on sepsis 3, we should note that severe sepsis is now a term of the past under sepsis 3. And sepsis 3 redefined septic shock as hypotension not responsive to fluid resuscitation, with the added requirement of vasopressors to maintain a MAP greater than or equal to 65 and with a lactate greater than 2. So quite a few changes. And Jeremy, this is a bit of a sticky topic coming up here, but let's talk about the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, their quality measures. They haven't really caught on and adapted sepsis 3 yet, have they? The CMS mandate is based on the presence of SERS criteria. Sepsis 3 is based on SOFA. This is definitely confusing. The challenging part in discussing this topic is separating out the QI guidelines from what is actually relevant to patient care based on the latest evidence-based medicine. That seems fair, but we're really going to put you in an uncomfortable spot for a second here and push you. Do you have any insight into why CMS isn't interested in following the mountains of research that have led to sepsis 3? Is there a reason why they're sticking to their current criteria? Quite frankly, I think some of it is the slow pace of bureaucracy and the time that it takes to develop a consensus on management. Even if we can agree on who is septic, it is really hard, if not impossible, to link the care to a pay-for-performance metric, which is what CMS would ultimately like to see. That's not how sepsis 3, or for that matter SERS, was designed to be used. If you're trying to take a tool which was originally designed for research and mold it into a tool which was used for pay-for-performance, you're not going to get very far. What a struggle. The CMS metrics are slightly different from the 2001 sepsis guidelines also. Take a look at Table 2 of the article for a quick comparison of sepsis 3, 2001 sepsis, and CMS side by side. And for those on Twitter, we'll be sure to tweet this table out too for your review. 
With so many different scores and definitions, I think that adequately sets the stage for the challenge this month's authors faced coming up with real evidence-based guidelines. Oh, absolutely. And to make matters worse, this is a huge problem. We're talking up to 850,000 ED visits annually in the U.S. and 19 million visits worldwide. Compounding this, sepsis results in death approximately one out of every four cases. Not only is it lethal, it's also very costly, $17 billion per year in the U.S. alone. And don't forget the important 30-day hospital readmission rates. Sepsis is coming in at a higher readmission rate and cost per admission than acute MI, CHF, COPD, and pneumonia. Let's speak briefly on the etiology and pathophysiology of sepsis. We all know that sepsis is due to local infections that then become systemic. Previously, it was believed that the bacterial infection itself was the cause of the clinical syndrome of sepsis. However, we now know that the syndrome of sepsis is due to the inflammatory and immunosuppressive mediators that were triggered by the infection. Normal immune regulatory safeguards fail, and this leads to the syndrome. And interestingly, several studies have shown that critically ill septic patients experience reactivations of specific viruses that were previously limited to patients with severe immunosuppression only. Definitely something to look out for in your critically ill septic patients. We should briefly talk about the most common inciting infections that lead to sepsis. In order, these are pneumonia, intra-abdominal infections, and urinary tract infections. No surprises there. Yeah, that basically parallels my own experience. That's reassuring. That takes us to our next potentially controversial topic, blood cultures. Jeremy, we're going to punt this one back to you. This is another interesting topic that has received plenty of attention. CMS loves blood cultures. It's an easy metric to track. That doesn't mean they're always helpful. We looked at our patients with lactates of between 2.1 and 4.0, which by Medicare definitions have quote-unquote severe sepsis. These patients were normotensive though, and in other words, they aren't really that sick. We found blood cultures were useful in this population about 20% of the time. That's not bad. So what do we do? We draw cultures before pushing IV antibiotics. Is that helpful? Sometimes yes. Does it waste money? Debatable. Does it help us meet our metrics? Definitely. And I think that gets at the crux of the problem here. We don't want to delay antibiotics on anyone, but we must balance this with the potential harm of further increasing the drug-resistant bacterial population via sound antibiotic stewardship. Remember also that there is a broad differential for sepsis with several, quote, sepsis mimics. To name a few, we have PE, MI, CHF, acute pulmonary edema, DKA, thyroid storm, GI bleed, drugs intoxications, and withdrawal syndromes, just to name a few. In case that wasn't enough, check out table three of the article. And we already mentioned the leading cause of sepsis. That's pneumonia, intra-abdominal infections, and UTIs. But remember the source can be anywhere. Be sure to also think of pyelonephritis, central line-associated bloodstream infections, prosthetics, endocarditis, necrotizing fasciitis, and meningitis. I don't think we need to dwell on this much longer. Basically, the differential is huge. Let's move on to my favorite section, pre-hospital care. Jeff, 20 pages of evidence-based recommendations, and your favorite is the pre-hospital section? What's up with that? I'm an EMS fellow. What can I say? Anyway, on to my favorite section, pre-hospital care. This is always a hot topic because the pre-hospital period is a special opportunity to get early interventions in for septic patients, as 40 to 70% of all severe sepsis hospitalizations arrive via EMS. And in one study taking place in a large metropolitan area, pre-hospital care time was over 45 minutes and less than 37% arrived with IV access. Of course, these numbers would vary significantly based on where you practice. 
So get this. One study showed that out-of-hospital shock index and respiratory rate were highly predictive of ICU admission. So clearly, early recognition and therapy may play a role here. Another study, however, showed knowledge gaps by advanced EMS providers in diagnosis and management of sepsis. And yet another study showed that only 18 to 21 percent of confirmed septic patients were suspected of having sepsis by EMS. Out-of-hospital fluids were started in only half of patients with severe sepsis. In essence, there is likely a strong role here for pre-hospital protocols for identifying and treating sepsis. In terms of pre-hospital treatments, though, pre-hospital IV fluids haven't been shown to improve mortality, but they have been associated with shorter hospital stays. Pre-hospital sepsis protocols have been described, but in general, more research is still needed in this area. While pre-hospital care hasn't yet been shown to improve the prognosis of septic patients, those presenting via EMS do have shorter delays to initiation of antibiotics, IV fluids, and early care bundles. EMS should focus primarily on stabilizing vital signs and providing efficient transport. If it's possible to establish an IV and initiate fluids without delaying transport, EMS should do that as well. And of course, oxygen for the hypoxic patients. Moving on to history and physical for your presumed septic patient. Jeremy, what are the big hitting things here that you always ask and check for and make sure that your residents are doing? After ABCs and glucose, altered mental status is really important. It's in the QSOFA score. Unfortunately, this can be really hard in many of our septic patients where their baseline mental status is, shall we say, less than perfect. The other thing is to try and find the source. Finding the source lets you make wise choices about therapy. That's a great point about the mental status. So many of our older population have an altered baseline, but recognizing changes from that baseline is absolutely the key. Absolutely. And with that in mind, let's talk diagnostic studies, especially lactate. Where I trained, basically everybody's getting a lactate. Even tired-looking residents seem to be having their lactates checked. And trust me, they weren't looking that good. Brace yourself. Lactate is really important in septic patients. That being said, not every cause of elevated lactate is sepsis. There is this other animal called type B lactic acidosis, which can come from numerous sources like drugs. The most notable culprit in our world is albuterol. Just because you see elevated lactate doesn't mean you can assume that the patient is septic. That being said, we know that patients with sepsis do better when they clear their lactate. Seems like the evidence is definitely in favor of serolactate testing. For sure. At least until you have a reasonable trend towards improvement. We know lactate clearers do better. We've looked at our own lactate numbers. Interestingly, the takeoff point for sepsis seems to be about 2.5, meaning that patients with altered vitals and lactates above 2.5 tend to do worse. But there is a broad differential to elevated lactate, as we mentioned before. What is true, though, is that lactate is a marker for badness. If your patient's lactate is rising, yours should be rising too. I bet I'm a lactate clearer. I may add lactate clear to my CV. That just sounds impressive. But I digress. Next up, we have procalcitonin. Since procalcitonin becomes elevated in those with bacterial infections, intuitively, this should be a valuable market to assess in potentially septic patients. Unfortunately, procalcitonin lacks negative predictive value, so most of the literature supports its use in diagnosing pulmonary infections and for antibiotic de-escalation. Good to know. I've seen it being used a lot more recently, and I'd wondered how evidence-based this actually was. Honestly, I don't see procalcitonin changing ED management at the moment. If you're waiting for procalcitonin to start your antibiotics or fluids, you're just waiting too long. Moving on, let's talk imaging. Based on current studies, the authors recommend focused imaging only. In addition, they also note that our good friend, the point-of-care ultrasound, likely plays a role, as in one study, 
POCUS demonstrated a 25% improvement in sensitivity from clinical impression alone. I think there are two ways that POCUS really comes in. One, lung ultrasound can be really useful to find that occult pneumonia or differentiating that pneumonia from CHF. Two, your ultrasound is really your best tool for assessing volume status. I try and look at the IVC of all my septic patients and echo them whenever possible. So now we've examined our patient, drawn labs and cultures, checked the lactate, maybe obtained imaging. Next up, we should probably start treating the patient. Whether you like it or not, we have to discuss CMS. Just to clarify before we start, CMS defines, quote unquote, severe sepsis as SIRS plus infection with a lactate of 2.1 to 4.0, and septic shock is SIRS plus infection with hypotension or a lactate greater than 4. That's where we're at. Good point. But back to treatment. Within the first three hours, for any patient with sepsis and septic shock, you must obtain a lactate, obtain two sets of blood cultures, administer antibiotics, and give an isotonic fluid challenge with 30 cc's per kg to patients with hypotension or a lactate greater than 4. Then, within the first six hours, you must apply vasopressors to achieve a map of at least 65, reassess their volume status and perfusion, and remeasure a lactate. This begs the question, are these recommendations evidence-based, Jeremy? I'm so glad you asked that. Let's start with fluids. Patients need adequate fluid resuscitation. Interestingly, there are three large RCTs, PROMISE, PROCESS, and ARISE, all published in the New England Journal of Medicine that compared a Rivers-type bundle to usual care. Surprisingly, they showed no difference. But when you really drill down into each of these three trials, you see that, quote-unquote, the usual care now generally includes at least two liters of fluid. Okay, so it seems that there is some pretty good data to support a rapid fluid challenge of at least 30 cc's per kg. But how do we determine who needs more fluids and how much more they actually need? There must be some endpoint that we can shoot for. Another million-dollar question. 30 cc's per kg is probably a really good place to start. How much is too much? I think we need to be smart about fluids. Some patients will need less, and some will need much, much more. So I remind my residents to be smart about their fluids. Sano and IVC, trend a lactate, follow a urine output, do a passive leg raise, even check a JVP if you can find it. I mean, just because you haven't seen a unicorn doesn't mean they're not real, right? Do something to monitor volume status. Very important points. Put your ultrasound skills to work here. They'll only improve as you practice more. Jeff, let's get started with the ever-important topic of antibiotics. Sounds good. Current guidelines recommend that broad-spectrum antibiotics be administered within the first hour of presentation for those with sepsis or septic shock, ideally with blood cultures being drawn beforehand. In one study, every hour of delayed antibiotic administration was associated with an 8% increase in mortality. Since this 2006 study, other studies have had mixed results, with studies showing increased odds of death with delays in antibiotic administration and others showing only a benefit in those with septic shock with or without hypotension with no benefit to those without shock. In terms of antibiotic coverage, you need to consider the site of infection, local resistance patterns, the presence of immunosuppression, and the patient's age and comorbidities. Table 5 of the article is very thorough and should be kept as a quick reference. Jeremy, do you have any specific recommendations for our listeners on how we should approach antibiotic usage in the septic patient? I like to think about antibiotics a little more simply than referencing a table. I ask myself a couple of questions. Does my patient need MRSA coverage? 
Does my patient need pseudomonal coverage? If the answer is no and no, then narrow your coverage. You don't necessarily have to use a bunch of Vanco or a big anti-pseudomonal like Piperacillin Tazobactam. Also, have a look at your local antibiogram. I can't tell you how many times this changes prescribing habits for even things like simple UTIs. I'm going to stray into some controversial territory here. The benefits of sepsis protocols are measured one patient at a time, but the harms of such protocols are measured in the aggregate. What does that mean? CMS metrics have caused us to use more and more broad-spectrum antibiotics. As a result, we're seeing more resistance. My residents tell me to make it easy and give them VZ. That's Vanxosin. And it kills me. It absolutely kills me. Every time you put a ZPAC into the world, a pneumococcus gets its wings. So think more about your antibiotics and know your local antibiograms. That's a great approach and a great way to think about all of this. I fear I've given a lot of pneumococci wings during my training. In any case, we're on to vasopressors. The data is pretty clear on this one. Norepinephrine is the recommended first-line vasopressor for septic shock. In numerous trials comparing norepinephrine to dopamine, norepinephrine was far superior, with dopamine increasing arrhythmias in one trial and associated with an increased risk of death as compared to norepinephrine in another trial. So here's a question I get all the time. How can I give norepi without a central line? Let's use dopamine. It's safe peripherally, right? Okay, so follow that logic through. We're going to give a drug to increase blood pressure by constricting blood vessels. But don't worry, it's safe peripherally. What does that mean that you can use a drug whose job it is to constrict blood vessels, but it's okay to put into a peripheral line? It means it doesn't work. It doesn't give much blood pressure. Dopamine is a lousy, lousy presser. It causes a lot of tachycardia, which is exactly what you do not want in a failing septic heart. So what do we do if we don't have a central line? I'll tell you, we start norepi peripherally into a large IV for the time that it takes us to get a line. That's where the evidence is there is a mortality benefit to norepinephrine over dopamine in septic shock. Right. And this month's authors agree with that. And they note that peripheral pressors may be safe for brief periods in settings with close monitoring. While this is commonplace in some hospitals, others haven't yet jumped on the bandwagon. I think it's important to mention that this is also becoming more and more commonplace, even in the pre-hospital realm. With the service I fly for, we routinely start peripheral vasopressors without hesitation. But this isn't limited to use in the air. Many ground 911 services have also adopted peripheral vasopressors in a variety of settings. I'm sure there are many trials to come in the future documenting their safety profile, but moving on to the next presser to discuss, vasopressin. This should be your second-line vasopressor for septic shock. In the VAST trial, low-dose vasopressin was found to be non-inferior to norepinephrine. In other trials, vasopressin also appeared to show potential benefit in those with AKI and sepsis, although the subsequent VANISH trial, perhaps the best name for a clinical trial so far, failed to demonstrate a benefit to vasopressin titration with regard to renal outcomes in septic shock. Vasopressin has also been shown to reduce norepinephrine dosing, 
when administered at a fixed dose of 0.03 to 0.04 units per minute. Next up, we have epinephrine. In one study, epinephrine and norepinephrine were equivalent in achieving MAP goals in ICU patients with shock. However, several of those receiving epinephrine developed marked tachycardia, lactic acidosis, or an increased insulin requirement. The increasing lactic acidosis could confound the trending of lactates. So in those requiring inotropy, in addition to some peripheral squeeze, the authors recommend adding dobutamine to norepinephrine instead of starting epinephrine. Although, keep in mind, this can lead to some hypotension, so remember to start it at low doses. Phenylephrine, a pure alpha-adrenergic agent, is next and should be considered neither first nor second line, but it may have a role as a push-dose agent while preparing other vasoactive agents. And lastly, we have angiotensin II. One recent 2017 study examining the role of angiotensin II in those with septic shock already on 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine found that those receiving angiotensin II had significant improvements in MAPS as well as their cardiovascular SOFA score at 48 hours with no significant difference in mortality. Unfortunately, these benefits do not come without risk as angiotensin II may increase the risk of arterial and venous thrombosis and potentially thromboembolism. Clearly, one study isn't enough to change practice, but it's certainly food for thought. So that wraps up vasopressors. Jeremy, we're on to corticosteroids, another hotly debated topic. When do you give steroids in sepsis? Mmm, steroids. This is an age-old question. No study has clearly supported the blanket use of steroids in septic shock. Several, like corticus and adrenal, showed no difference at all. I will use hydrocortisone for presser refractory shock, meaning you've tried everything else, so you might as well throw in some steroids too. Also, I tend to avoid atomidate given the possibility of adrenal suppression and that there are several other good induction agents, most notably ketamine, that don't have the question hanging over them around adrenal suppression. Those trials are certainly important. Thanks for bringing them up. Especially with all the foam content out there, it's incredibly important to look back at the data to understand where certain recommendations are coming from. Anyway, one quick note on blood transfusions before we move on to our special populations. Although part of the original early goal-directed therapy, thanks to data from the TRIS trial, which showed no difference in outcomes with a transfusion goal of 7 versus 9, transfusions are reserved for those with a hemoglobin of less than 7. One population we should make sure to touch on is those patients with end-stage liver disease. In the ER, we tend to miss SBP a lot, mostly because these patients have lots of other reasons to be sick, and they already have elevated lactate because of their decreased lactate clearance. My practice is to give these patients a dose of ceftriaxone and send the diagnostic tap whenever they are sick and they have gross ascites. All right, Jeremy, let's talk controversies and sepsis. We're giving you all the big questions this month. Controversies are my favorite. We've already talked about fluids and how much to give. Just a reminder that a history of CHF does not preclude proper fluid resuscitation. I think broad-spectrum antibiotics for relatively well patients is a big controversy. Our national rates of antibiotic resistance are terrible, and yet we're using more and more antibiotics all the time. There are very few, if any, antibiotics coming down the pharma pipeline, and we're going to have to face the music eventually. Finally, we need national metrics that mirror clinical evidence. Protocols should be a tool and not a crutch. You know what's best for the patient in front of you, so don't let metrics or protocols make you do things that are not in your patient's best interest. So how do you escape the hospital protocols and CMS and do what's best for your patient without getting in trouble? Here's how I deal with this one. I'm the one who reads and QIs all of our sepsis charts every single month. And I tell my colleagues this, do what's right 
And if you need to deviate from the protocol, just tell me why. As long as you can explain your decision, I'll support it. Explaining your thinking is a good clinical practice and it's good medical legal practice. CMS has been unable to link these metrics to payment simply because there is no hospital that can meet them with any regularity. It's important that we advocate for our patients or absolutely nothing will change. Make them respect you for the highly educated professional that you are and your patients will benefit. Well said. And before we close out with this position, there are a few new therapies and trials on the horizon to keep a lookout for. The RACE trial examined the role of L-carnitine. The Victus trial is looking at vitamin C, thiamine, and steroids and sepsis. And the Clovers trial is looking at early vasopressors versus a crystalloid liberal strategy. And lastly, IL-7 is also being investigated. All really cool stuff that could change how we manage sepsis in the future. A few quick notes on disposition before we close this episode out. Certainly not all patients meeting SIRS require admission, but many do. Those with a Q-SOFA of two or higher represent a sick population and an ICU admission should be considered. Even those with a Q-SOFA of one but a lactate over two, they have a mortality that approaches those of patients with a Q-SOFA of two. Be careful just sending a patient who's on the fence to the floor because several studies have demonstrated that patients who are later upgraded have worse outcomes. That's in line with the general themes we've laid out today. Definitely better to start early with aggressive care rather than play catch up later. Jeremy, in 30 seconds or less, what are the most salient points in the management of sepsis that you would like our listeners to take home with them from this episode? Here are my takeaways. Number one, QSOFA, respiratory rate greater than 22, altered mental status, systolic blood pressure less than 100. Number two, norepinephrine, not dopamine, it does not work. Number three, be smart about fluids. Number four, be smarter about antibiotic use and know your antibiogram. And number five, you are the best advocate for your patient despite what anyone else says. All great points. So that wraps up the October 2018 episode of Amplify. A big thanks to Dr. Jeremy Rose for joining us this month. Thank you guys for having me. It was great talking to you. And for our listeners, additional materials are available on our website for emergency medicine practice subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining today. You can find out more at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. Subscribers get in-depth articles on hundreds of emergency medicine topics, concise summaries of the articles, calculators and risk scores, and CME credits. You'll also get enhanced access to the podcast, including the images and tables mentioned. You can find everything you need to know at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. And the address for this month's credit is ebmedicine.net slash E1018. So head over there to get your CME credit right away. As always, the you heard throughout the episode corresponds to the answers to the CME questions. Lastly, be sure to find us on iTunes and rate us or leave comments there. You can also email us directly at amplify at ebmedicine.net with any comments or suggestions. Talk to you all next month. Music.